so God we bless you and we do affirm great is your faithfulness the fact that we're breathing right now is a testimony to your faithfulness the fact that that as my grandmama used to say you woke us up this morning and started us on our way clothed in our right mind is a testament to your faithfulness Lord God Oh God, rid us of entitlement spirits, of ungrateful hearts. We bless you, Lord God. If you do nothing else for us, you've done enough because you sent your only son, Jesus, who died on the cross for us and has given us new life, Lord God. Now speak to us out of your faithfulness from your great word. It is to that end that I'm available to you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated. In the presence of the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me this morning for our time of study around God's Word. In the book of John, the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53. We're going to read from John 7, beginning in verse 53, all the way through John chapter 8, verse 11. Every week we are committed to uh, putting the text on the screen, and that's specifically for those of you who are here and uh, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus Christ or you're new to matters of the faith and you're just seeking and, and searching, um, but for those of us who would call ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ, I want to always encourage you to, to bring your Bibles to church, whether on your phone or or a hard copy, take notes, and uh, go back over it through the course of the week. God, God's going to speak to us as he always does through his word. John 7, beginning in verse 53, John records, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman... Make note of this phrase, who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said, verse 6, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For 12 years, I pastored in the city of Memphis. And if you know anything about Memphis, Memphis for sure, excuse my language, ain't the bay. It is not just the Bible Belt, but it is the buckle of the Bible Belt. It's Churchville, USA. Um, 
I'll never forget one Sunday, I just got finished preaching and I'm standing down front and I'm shaking hands and just welcoming people. There's a lot of people collected at the altar. Uh, we had a tradition at the church that I pastored in Memphis, much like the tradition here, that at the end of service, um, uh, many of our elders would gather and just make themselves available to pray with people. And so uh, th this is a, almost a sacred space. Is there are people who are praying, people who are gathering, people who are who are collecting. Some of them are there for prayer. Some of them are there to, um, to meet me, and I'm meeting and greeting people, and I just got finished shaking hands. And, and then the next person, before he said a word, I smelled him. He reeked of cigarettes. I would later find out in his own self-described terms that he, he considered himself to be a disgruntled atheist, his words. Here he is, young man, couldn't have been any more than 22, 23 years of age. Here he is at this church that is the buckle of the Bible belt in this city. And he yells out, Pastor, that sermon was the expletive. Well, now I'm looking around me. Here I am in Memphis, Tennessee, in church at the altar. And now all of these Christians, I could feel their eyes on my neck. It was obvious this man hadn't got the memo of what you should or shouldn't say in church. Not only that, if I could smell him, I'm sure people all around him could smell that he reeked of smoke. Smelled as if he had just smoked several um, packs of cigarettes. And I hate to admit it, but my immediate reflex reaction was embarrassment. I felt like a spotlight was being shown on me. I felt embarrassed. We exchanged pleasantries. He even said he wanted to meet with me later on that week, which I did. I went home, but I couldn't get that interaction out of my mind. Later on that afternoon, I still chewing on this interaction, the embarrassment had dissipated, and now I began to feel a sense of, of joy. I began to say to myself, this is exactly what I signed up for when I entered into the pastorate, that I wanted to be a part of a church that was filled with people who didn't get the memo. I wanted to be a part of something in which people needed to be educated on what they should and probably should not say. I wanted to be a part of something where our landscaping was so inviting, our curb appeal was so attractive that people from every walk of life felt comfortable walking in. After all, this was the ministry of Jesus. Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, he put it out on Front Street, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the sick. Jesus Christ himself said, I have come to seek and to save, not that in which was found and has it together, but I've come for those who are lost. Jesus Christ himself was known as being the friend of sinners. The church is not some kind of secret society or fraternity that is just the socially okay. 
The church fundamentally exists to be a warm, welcoming, inviting place for, again, people who have not been schooled into what is appropriate or inappropriate etiquette. To put it out on Front Street, I long to be a church in which even gay couples walk in holding hands for the first time. Now, I want you to fasten your seatbelts. This is going to be, for some of us, a very unsettling sermon. It's going to mess with you. But our survival as a church in the Bay Area, 10 million people, 2 to 3% Christian, I'm here to tell you, I didn't move my family from New York City to the Bay to fight with other churches over the other two to three percent. So we're gonna have to figure this thing out. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to maybe undo some things. We're gonna have to really um, maybe unlearn some things. And this morning I want to talk to you about grace. Now we're in a series, a five-part series, in which we're unpacking our core values. Our core values here at Abundant Life, we call them the five G's. Here they are, gospel. We want to take people from death to life. Generosity. We want to take people from consuming to contributing. Grace. We want to take people from this mindset that I've got to perform for God to accept me. We want to take them from performing to abiding. Next, we want to spend some time talking about going. We want, to, we want to take people from hearing to proclaiming. And then we want to talk some about gathering. We want to take people from isolation to community. These are our five core values. This morning, I want to talk about grace. I can't say everything that there is to say about grace. I just want to fly in about 35,000 feet and I want to talk to you from my gut about what it's going to take for us to be a people in a culture of grace. I want you to listen to this sermon on two levels. On a macro level, I want you to listen to this sermon from the perspective of what is it going to take for us to be the people of God collectively as a church, to be a church of grace. But secondly, we'll never get there as a church until we get there as individual Christians. As goes the Christian, so goes the church. So I want you to listen to it, not just from a corporate perspective, but from an individual perspective. What does it take for you to be a person of grace? What does grace mean? To speak Christianese, grace means unmerited favor. Or to say it another way, grace fundamentally means to get something you did not deserve. Grace isn't mercy. Grace and mercy are the same coin, just two different sides. On one side of the coin is mercy. Mercy simply means that um, I did not get what I did deserve. On the other side of the coin is grace. It is I did get what I did not deserve. Or as my friend Matt Chandler says, Matt Chandler says of grace, grace fundamentally means you didn't eat your dinner, but you still get dessert. Grace is getting a call from your school that your daughter got suspended. It's picking her up from school 
and on the way home stopping by Best Buy to get her a new cell phone. Some of y'all going, uh, Pastor, that's, that's going a little bit too far. But that's the point. Grace goes too far. Grace fundamentally is giving to someone something they don't deserve. I remember growing up, Corey and I often talk about this. We, we want our home to be the home in our neighborhood that all the kids flock to. Now, I know part of that, there's some control issues there because I don't know you and I'd rather have you at my house than my kid at your house. Pray for me. But still, we want our, our, our house to be the gathering spot. And whenever I think about that, I, I, I think about a woman in my neighborhood, her and her husband growing up. This woman's name was Mrs. Radcliffe. Her house was the house to go to in the neighborhood. Why? Well, part of that is she, she had a great kind of basketball court set up in the backyard, and all of us kids during the summertime in Atlanta, we'd go in the backyard, and we'd play over there, and it's 95 degrees and 95% humidity, which means we worked up a real good sweat, and, you know, uh, after the game, we'd flock inside the house, and we'd plop down with our sweaty selves on, on her sofa, and she wouldn't reprimand us, and we'd take the remote control, and we'd watch whatever we wanted to watch on TV, One my favorite things about our house, she had this extra refrigerator in her garage that she just stocked for us kids. And we drink all the sodas we want and eat all the snacks we want. And every single time, Mrs. Radcliffe would have fresh baked chocolate chip cookies ready for us. Now, years later, listen to me, what I remember about her house wasn't the rules. I'm sure she had them. I just don't remember them. What I remembered was the aroma of grace. Grace packs the place. You ever wonder why Jesus had so many people around him? Grace. Legalistic people are lonely people. Legalistic people are isolated people. Legalistic people typically are, are, are those who are so concerned with rules and regulations. They're like referees always throwing a flag. Who wants to be around that? Gracious people always have someone over for dinner. Gracious people always have people around them. It's the aroma of their life. As we talk about our future at Abundant Life, and, and again, I didn't come here to take us back to circa 2003 or 2004. There's a new chapter God wants to write in this church. And a part of this new chapter that God is going to write is that we have to be a people who are relentlessly and ruthlessly committed to go to war with legalism and to become people of grace. So we can't talk about grace without talking about its antithesis, legalism. Legalism fundamentally says, I'm good based on what I do. Grace fundamentally says, I'm good based on what Christ has done. Legalism fundamentally says, I do, therefore I'm approved. Grace fundamentally says, I'm approved, therefore I do. Legalism is focused on behavior. Grace is focused on the heart. Legalism always leads to a nauseating arrogance, pride, and self-righteousness. 
But when you understand that all you've got is of grace, when you understand what Paul tells the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? When you understand that if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, where would I be? When you ever understand that God woke me up morning by morning, new mercies I see, that all that I am isn't because of how cute I am, how many letters I have behind my name, how much money I have in the bank, but everything I have dangles by a single solitary thread called grace. When you ever understand that, you'll be humble. Because that's what grace does. But we've got to go to war with grace, with legalism. We have to go to war with legalism. Why? Because Jesus did. If you ever want to see Jesus ticked off in the Gospels, practically it's the only time outside of uh, them misusing the temple. If you ever want to see Jesus go postal in the Gospels, if you ever want to see him about to lose his mind up in here, up in here, to quote DMX, that great 1990s hip-hop poet. Get them around some legalists. I'm here to tell you, legalists continue to come to church. They continue to plague the church. And in Abundant Life, we have got to put a full court press on legalists. Legalists will kill the life and vitality of your church. Legalists love rules more than they love people. Legalists are more concerned about themselves and being right than about other people. And I've seen it dog the church. Some of us grew up in churches where ladies, if you came to church with pants on, anybody go to church like that? This is... I heard someone one shout back there. This is, this is legalism. He, hear me. Legalism is never content with just the word of God. They always want extra credit. They love adding to the word. Show me what chapter and verse that says ladies can't wear pants to church. I've preached in churches. I remember one time getting castigated because I had the nerve to not preach out of the King James Version. Think about that for a moment. The King James Version. He was after Jesus. But this is legalists. It's the legalist who walks into church one Sunday and mutters to themselves the nerves sitting in my seat. Now they know I've been sitting in that seat for the last 15 years. You can't even worship God now because they sit in in your seat. It's the legalist who gets upset because we've changed the style of worship. Hear me, we haven't changed the substance or the focus of worship. It's still Jesus. But now the legalist gets upset. Well, you know we always sing hymns here. Hymns is, is, is what I like. We always sing hymns here. That's what we do. By the way, did you know the big scandal of the church in the 1700s? Back in the 1700s, they used to literally sing the Psalms. But now someone had a bright idea to write Christocentric, Christ-centered lyrics and set them to, watch this now, bar tunes. 
Did, did you know every time you sing a hymn, for the most part, you're singing a melody that came out of bars? So the big scandal in the 1700s, I can't believe we're not singing the Psalms anymore. They're doing this new thing called hymns. And now we want to have a big scandal. I can't believe we're not doing hymns anymore. They're singing contemporary. Well, if you're mature in Christ and gracious, you ought to be able to say, as long as it's Jesus. It could be Bruno Mars, but as long as the focus is on Jesus. It's the legalist. Legalists berate servers when they mess up their order. Because to the legalist, it's all about performance. They won't leave a tip, which is oftentimes called gratuity, which comes from the word grace, which means to give someone something they don't deserve. It's the legalist who says, what is she doing on stage singing? It's the legalist who says, how did he end up playing in the band? It's the legalist who says, what is he doing preaching? Legalism. So we've got to put a full court press on it. This morning, I want to teach you a handful of things found right here in our story about grace. I want you to look at John chapter 7, verse 53, and these are incredible, earth-shattering principles about grace. Who here, when you look at John chapter 7, verse 53, maybe you see a footnote in your Bible. Does anyone see a footnote in their Bible? You should see a footnote, and that footnote pretty much tells us that this text was not found in the earliest manuscripts of the scribes. Does anybody see that? It wasn't found there. It wasn't found in the earliest manuscripts of the scribes. Now, you may be thinking, why, pastor, are we even preaching on this text if the footnote is telling us that really this story may not have happened? Two reasons. Number one, this story is completely consistent with how Jesus treated sinful people. This is not a deviation from how Jesus consistently treated the social outcasts and pariahs of his day. But secondly, and more germane to our discussion, we can trust the veracity of this because there was a 4th century African Bible scholar and theologian by the name of Augustine. Augustine gives us this insight into our text. Augustine says that the reason why the scribes did not want to include this story in the original manuscripts is because they were concerned that Christianity was birthed amongst a very sexually promiscuous culture. They were concerned that new Christians or people who didn't know Jesus would read this story, see his grace, and take that grace as license for sin. In other words, Augustine readily admitted that grace fundamentally, here it is at your neighborhood, is shocking and scandalous. If it doesn't raise an eyebrow, it ain't grace. If it doesn't cause a, a, an outcry, it ain't grace. See, fundamentally, all of us have been wired towards fairness. We all have this ethic that says, if I do it over here, I should receive it over here. And grace comes along and it doesn't play by those rules. Grace fundamentally says, life isn't fair, neither am I. Grace says, I am not going to treat you the way you deserve, and therein lies the scandal of grace. 
It was Tullian Chavigian who once said and wrote prolifically, grace fundamentally is insulting. It insults our sensibilities. We saw this just the other day. Now, y'all pray for me because I'm still grieving as a Falcons fan. I know, I know. I know you 49ers fans don't get that. It's been a long time since you've even smelled the... Anyways, um, so here I am. Here I am. My Falcons lose. That's okay. We gave it to them. Merry Christmas. Um, and then we give the 49ers Kyle Shanahan. Well, now we need a new offensive coordinator, and who do we get? Lo and behold, Steve Sarkeesian. This causes an uproar. Why? Because if you know anything about Steve Sarkeesian, just two years ago, he was coaching the USC football Trojans, and he got fired from his job. Why? Because he's an alcoholic. And now people are looking at the Falcons going, I can't believe you are actually hiring this guy, an alcoholic. And it's causing an uproar because fundamentally that's what grace does. It's scandalous. These people are saying this man is not qualified for that job. If you understand anything about God and who God uses, you need to understand no one is qualified for God to use. You just read through the Bible. I can just go down the list. He uses a murderer like Moses. And he says, I know you're not qualified, but I want you to lead my people. He uses a murderer and an adulterer like David. He says, I know you're not qualified. Your dad didn't even consider you qualified enough to parade you out in front of, uh, of my servant. But I am going to anoint you. You're the next king. You ain't qualified, but I'm giving you the job. He uses a womanizer like Samson, a womanizer like Solomon. He uses a prostitute like Rahab, a prostitute includes her in the genealogy of Jesus. It is as if he's saying, I know you're not qualified, but I'm still going to use you. That is the scandal of grace. Oh, 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 oh. By the way, ain't none of us in this room qualified for God to use us. I want you to look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul hits home on this when he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I love this. And he says, And such were some of you. So if you want to just open up the spiritual credit report, That's the baffling part about legalism. The legalist is the ultimate hypocrite. You look at other people as if your stuff don't stink. And such were some of you. Hear the grace, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Not that you pulled it together. God washed you. God sanctified you. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All that I have is from grace. This is scandalous. So for me to receive grace and then in legalism withhold grace is high treason. Not only is grace scandalous, but we learn something else. Here's this woman. The text tells us that she's been caught in adultery. I personally believe this woman's been set up. 
Why? Because the big question of our text is, where's the man? Now, last I, I, last I knew, it takes two to have adultery. Why do they drag her and don't drag the man? I think they were out to get her uh, even more so. I think they just wanted to use her as an object lesson to get Jesus. I think they staked her place out. I, I think they had some intel. I think they waited till the wee hours of the morning. They stood maybe outside the window. They caught her not in a compromising position. They literally caught her in the act. They barge into her house. They drag her out of bed. Probably they don't even allow her enough time to get appropriately addressed. Dressed. She's, she's probably crying. She's disheveled. Maybe they're dragging her down the road. They know that Jesus' rhythm is at night. He sleeps in the Mount of Olives. In the morning, he teaches uh, at the temple. A large crowd has gathered around Jesus. He's preaching this sermon. Here they are. As Jesus is preaching, he notices in the back of the crowd, the crowd starts to part. It is a group of religious leaders, these legalists. They are dragging this woman, maybe even by her hair. And now she's front and center. The text says, these scoundrels, they put her in the midst. They don't care anything about this woman. They don't even have the decency to call Jesus to the side and to protect her dignity. They put her junk out on Front Street, right in the midst. And notice how they refer to her. They don't call her by name, they don't just call her woman. They define her by her sin. This woman has been caught in adultery. You can, this is one of the defining essential DNA traits of legalists. Legalists love labeling people. That's the gay couple. That's the liar. That's the gossip. Watch out for her. She was the mistress. She broke up that marriage. Watch out for him. He's got anger issues. Watch out for him. He's the abuser. Uh, she, she's the adulterer. Watch out for her. Watch out. We, we, we love to label people by their yesterdays and to so handcuff them by their yesterdays that we never give them the grace to write a new chapter today or tomorrow. It's what legalists do. They take a snapshot of people in their worst moments. They take a picture of people in their worst moments, not realizing that people fundamentally aren't pictures, they're movies. Scenes change. There's growth. I'm not who I was. This is the legalist. Anybody ever saw the movie Fences? L let me completely give it away. Give it away. In fact, let's just have a pastoral moment. I love illustrations. A lot of my illustrations will come from movies. Here, I'll make an agreement to you. Um, I'll give you two weeks to see the movie. Anything after two weeks, fair game. All right? I won't completely give it away, but in this movie, there's Denzel Washington, Viola Davis. They do a phenomenal job. Uh, glad they're up for, for Academy Awards. But, but, but here's Denzel, and man, he's just kind of a scoundrel of a character. He's a hard man, hard on his son. Um, he's just very harsh, abrasive. Uh, to, to make matters worse, like this woman, he's an adulterer, has a child out of wedlock, so on and so forth. But here's the deal. At least I felt this way at the end of the movie. I, I, I left feeling conflicted. I, I didn't necessarily demonize him at the end of the movie, and here's why. Because when I left, I knew his story. 
I understood that he felt stuck in life. I, I understood that, that, that there were some decisions, that there were some things that happened to him that kind of made him into the person that he is. And here's the second thing I want you to see about grace. Not only is grace scandalous, but secondly, grace sees the story. The legalist only sees the sin. Grace sees the story. Grace, grace understands that there are some things that happen to you that doesn't excuse the behavior, but it allows me to see it and feel compassion once I hear the story. In John chapter 4, Jesus sits down with a woman at the well, and he has a conversation with her. And, and watch this. This woman is the town kind of immoral woman. She's the social outcast, the social pariah. And listen to Jesus. Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You haven't just been with four men. The fifth one you're with. See, back then, you need to understand, women couldn't divorce their husbands. It was only husbands who could divorce their wives. So he understands this immoral woman had had her heart broken four or five times. And he's able to show her grace because he knows the story. We Christians are too quick to write people off. Let me just come to your neighborhood. This is very unsettling. I grew up in Atlanta back in the 80s, which means, I just hate to say it, I grew up very homophobic. I just did. I said unspeakable things out of my mouth using homophobic rhetoric. Can I just be real with you? That changed a couple years ago. Let me tell you what changed it. I was doing a series of sermons at our church, preparing to do a series of sermons at our church in Memphis called Our Gay Neighbor. I was very concerned in this series. I, I didn't want to just blast people with the truth of the word of God I wanted to get to know their story. I got up one Sunday and said, look, look if, if you're part of the church and you struggle with same-sex attraction, I, I want you to meet me in my office. I just want to hear your story. Twelve people showed up. We ate dinner in my office. In tears, they said things like, from the moment I was born, I just knew something was different about me. A couple people said, I actually prayed to God and begged him to take it away. And he has it. One person said, I was abused. I remember hearing one person's story. He said, my stepfather used to wait till my mother went to work, and he'd take me in the garage, face me towards a picture of Jesus who was smiling and would rape me. I don't write those people off anymore. What changed me was hearing the story. Some of you are like, now, Pastor, I'm waiting on you to tell me it's wrong. Please tell me you think it's wrong. That's another sermon for another time. I could tell you of a, of, a, of a woman that I know. If this woman came to church here, we wouldn't need an app. We wouldn't need a website. Just tell her, and in two days, the whole world will know. But I know her story, and I can tell you fundamentally she has low self-esteem. And the way she feels good about herself is through gossip. Not excusing the behavior, but you are better positioned for grace 
when you sit down over a cup of coffee and hear the story. Legalism sees the sin. It's stuck on it. Grace does the work of hearing the story. And we've got to be a people of God who refuse to allow ourselves to be defined by a few words, and instead we need to be defined by listening to people's story. There's something else we see. So they bring this woman to Jesus. Our text tells us that here's their motives. They, they do it to test him. And they want to back Jesus into a proverbial corner between the proverbial rock and hard place. Here's the dilemma they're trying to catch Jesus in. They, they say, Jesus, what do you think? Should we stone this woman? Now, if Jesus says yes, he's now made himself an enemy of Rome. Rome said it was illegal for anyone to arbitrarily execute someone without their permission. So if Jesus says, yeah, kill her, he's now made himself an enemy of Rome. But if Jesus says, no, you can't kill her, he's now made himself an enemy of Moses and the law. So what does he do? Text tells us he doesn't say anything. He just writes on the ground. Now, here's one of the ways you know the Bible is true. If you're here today, you don't know Jesus Christ, and you're wondering about the truth of the Scriptures, here's, here's one of the ways you know it's true. They don't tell us what he wrote. Why in the world would you write a story and include this incredible detail and not unpack it? Who does that? He writes and he writes. Now, I'd like to think that he wrote each of their sins down. I think that's a good, good guess. He writes down their stuff in his omniscience. Yeah, Peter, I just saw you the other night. Da, 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 da. Peter sees it. Oh, time to go. <laughs> but at the end of the day, we don't know. Here's what we do know. Whatever he wrote was powerful enough for them to put down their stones and leave from the oldest to the youngest one by one. Here's what we learned about grace. Grace disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. Grace disturbs the comfortable, and it comforts the disturbed. That's what grace does. Whatever Jesus said was powerful enough for these church attending, seminary graduating, ministry trained, legalists to be profoundly disturbed. Many of us have either seen or read the book Les Miserables. This thing is all about grace. 
Here's Jean Valjean, this hardened criminal. He gets released. He steals this precious silver from, from the bishop. The, the police are called. They, they catch Valjean. They bring him back to the bishop. And, and the bishop, in an astounding act of grace, says, Valjean, why, why didn't you take the other items I gave you as well? The police are baffled. They then leave. And the bishop then says to Valjean, with this act of grace, I have liberated you. I have set you free. And it changes his life. But there's a problem. The main antagonist, Javert, he spends his life pursuing Valjean because he's disturbed by the grace. And what happens to Javert? Kills him. That's what grace does. It disturbs the comfortable. And it comforts the, desert, the, the disturbed. See, I don't think we're doing ministry right unless people are leaving. I don't think a church does ministry right unless people leave. What does that mean? Oftentimes, we, 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 we evaluate the success of a ministry on who's coming. And we do everything we can to retain people. I think a healthy ministry intentionally loses people. And those people who leave are legalists. Because they're just uncomfortable. They're uncomfortable with the message of grace. They're just uncomfortable. I think I'm not really preaching the word of God until there's a backdoor revival happening at ALCF. We got to get the legalists out of here. We can't have church until the legalists leave. We've got to preach the disturbing message of grace. This is what grace does. And then here's Jesus comforting the disturbed. It's, it's just him and Jesus face to face. Jesus and this woman caught in adultery, and he, he stands up with her, and he's, he's comforting her. This is the last same-sex attraction illustration I'll use, but I've got a friend of mine, conservative pastor, conservative church. His son is gay. My friend, his daughter gets married. All these conservative church folk are around. His son shows up with his partner. It's now time for the photos. His son is off to the side as all these conservative Christians are looking on. The family is gathered for the photo. His son's off to the side with his partner. Everybody's looking on. And my friend, this conservative pastor, looks at his son and says, get in here and bring your friend. disturbing. I know you're waiting on me to tell me. Well, pastor, what do you think about that? Grace oftentimes raises more questions than it gives answers. Grace is more art than it is science. Let's go home on this one. Here's Jesus. The legalists have left the building. 
He says to her, ma'am, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? She says, no, Lord. I'll come back to that. He says, neither do I condemn you. Watch it now. Go in peace and sin no more. Up until this point, you may be thinking grace has no standards. Up until this point in the message, you you may think grace is this spineless, no backbone thing that just pats people on the back and says, do you. Jesus looks at this woman and he says, go in peace, don't miss it, and sin no more. Jesus says, There's no one more gracious ever than Jesus. Jesus, this man full of grace and truth, speaks truth to this woman. By the way, it cannot be grace unless there's not truth involved. Grace fundamentally says, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. But watch it. How do I know if you don't deserve it unless there's a standard? And, And how can there be a standard unless there's a sense of truth, right and wrong? Jesus says, ma'am, let's call it what it is. You sinned. What you did was wrong. I'm not excusing it. Ma'am, hear it now. You are guilty, but not condemned. That's grace. Grace says, I did it. Grace says, I'm wrong. Grace said, I was out of line. Grace said, I shouldn't have had the affair. Grace said, I shouldn't have told the lie. Grace said, I shouldn't have gossiped. Grace shouldn't have said, I said, I shouldn't have been that addict. Grace says, I'm guilty, but because of Jesus, I am not condemned. Romans 8.1 says, if anyone be in Christ, there is no condemnation. And watch it. This woman, look at it, she calls him Lord. The legalists don't call him Lord. What do they call him? Teacher. You know what Lord means? It means to be master. The problem with legalists is they know Jesus as teacher, but they don't know him as Lord. You can't know Jesus as your Lord, the most gracious person who ever lived, and you refuse to show grace to others. Grace fundamentally transforms as the band comes. Several years ago, there was a young man living a life of fornication. He went from woman to woman to woman to woman. Finally, he got married, but this this didn't stop. He was an adulterer, a serial adulterer, going from woman to woman to woman to woman to woman. And in the midst of his adultery, he got saved. The great hound of heaven invaded his heart and life, and, and God cleaned up his act and made him new. Not only that, in an irony of ironies, the scandal of grace, God called him to be a pastor and a preacher. This man was so effective preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ that people would flock from all over the then known world to hear him preach these messages he would preach in the United Kingdom. 
Every time he'd open up the doors of the church, every time he'd preach a revival and would give people an invitation to receive the grace of God, the altar would be flooded. One day, as the story goes, he's, he's doing a tent meeting revival and he's sitting on stage. The choir is finishing up the song when, when the usher hands him a note and what he reads rocks him to his core. It's one of his former mistresses who had come to the meeting. She writes in this note, I know exactly who you are. You're not fooling everyone. And as soon as you stand up to preach, I'm going to stand up and reveal to everyone gathered what a fake and what a phony you are. The choir finishes. He gets to the podium, Bible in one hand, this woman's note in the other. He immediately reads this woman's note with tears streaming down his face. He says, she is exactly right. This is who I was. But since Christ has come in my life, it is not who I am. I am a new creation. I'm guilty. But not condemned. This is grace, friends. And God's grace is enough. I just, I, just, I just hear that in my spirit. Let's just, God's grace is enough. Every week, we just want to say some things together. And, and, and at the end of this, as Sky reminded us, we're going to say, you are sent. It is our way of saying that, look, coming to a building is good. It's good to receive some things. But now it's time to break huddle and to take what we've received and pass it out and live it out in the bay. So let's say these words, words which remind us of what we've learned today. Let's say them all together, shall we? Father, we have freely received your scandalous grace on our lives. So we commit to lavishly dispense your same scandalous grace to others. We make war with legalism in our hearts knowing that we are not good because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. Help us to be lighthouses of grace here in the bay. Amen. You are sent.